0: Good morning, everyone. <laughs> like, like half of you are really glad to be here. That's great. I was very encouraging to our 8.30 service. They're like, the 8.30 crowd, they're like the morning people. And so there's like half of them in the room, but they're like the loudest group. And then as the morning goes on, like the 11.30 crowd, they're the people that have a hard time waking up at the crack of noon. And so they don't, they're not quite as responsive, and y'all are kind of somewhere in the middle. That's just the normal... That's just kind of the normal thing. It's great to see you guys. Thanks for joining us for worship this morning at the Vista. We're in the eighth week of our series entitled Long Live the Revolution. We've been walking through the New Testament book of Acts together for like the last couple months. Um, Next week, Nick, our small groups pastor, is going to be kind of putting a bow on the series for us, wrapping that up. Um, And so this morning, we are in Acts chapter 24, if you want to begin to turn there, Acts 24. Um, as you're turning there, you know, we're doing a series about the church. Acts is all about the beginnings of Christianity. It's about the beginnings of this revolution or this movement called the church. Um, and so I wanted to just mention um, that at our last Discover the Vista, we, about two weeks ago, we had um, a, a Discover the Vista membership class, and we had maybe our largest group ever come through that class and our largest group ever join Um, And I want to mention that because um, that's a really big deal that we want to celebrate. Um, If you look statistically at a lot of churches, um, it can be discouraging. It can be a little bit discouraging thinking that, man, the revolution is dying out, right? Like people are leaving the church, and um, especially young people are walking away from the church. And so for us, it's a really encouraging thing that there are so many people that are joining the revolution. To be reminded that God's work through the church is not finished. Uh, that God has a lot that he wants to accomplish through the church. And so these are families, these are individuals, these are people that have chosen to commit to this family here uh, and live out, they've committed to living out the discipleship pathway uh, of worship, connect, give, serve, and go that we have laid out there. And so we are excited about that. I would also just encourage you, if you're here, maybe you've been attending for a little while, um, you're praying about, thinking about, should I join, should I not join? Um, I would just challenge you, to commit, to join, and and even if that's not here, be committed to a local body um, of believers somewhere. It's really, really important for your spiritual growth to be committed to a church somewhere. And so um, as we talk about the church, um, we want to celebrate those that have committed here and then challenge you to make sure you commit to a local body of believers for your own spiritual good. Acts 24, and so we find ourselves in a section of Acts that... um, Honestly, it's, it's kind of the section of Acts that as you're reading through, you just want to hurry and skip through, right? It's, it's the section of Acts that when Austin and I are talking about who's going to preach what part, we both kind of go, not it, right? Like, it's, it's, um, it, it's really, I'll tell you what happens. Um, in 21, Paul is going back to uh, Jerusalem, and once again, Paul gets arrested. Surprise, surprise, right? Seems to be a theme in his life. He has gotten into some of that good trouble that Austin talked about a few weeks ago, and he once again finds himself arrested. And then, in these chapters, um, in, in kind of the later part of Acts, it's basically Paul going through a series of trials. Uh, it's kind of like uh, uh, before different kings or authorities or uh, tribunals. It's like um, it's like a courtroom scene that plays out time and time and time again. There's the prosecution. There's the defense. It's like, you know, an episode of Law & Order that's being played out there in the text. Or if you're older, you know, Perry Mason or Matlock or whatever your favorite courtroom drama is, right? That's kind of what's going on. And so you look at the text and go, what are we going to take from all of these sort of courtroom scenes that are playing out as Paul is on trial? Well, in Acts 24, I want to focus on the last part of the chapter. Paul is on trial uh, in chapter 24 before the governor of Judea, a man named Felix a man named Felix. And so, uh, essentially what happens, just kind of setting the stage, uh, again, uh, Paul gets arrested uh, and he's made the Jewish leadership really, really angry again. Um, Paul's M.O. was to roll into a town, and as you know, he would often go to the synagogue first, preach the gospel in the synagogue. And while some of them would get really angry and start a riot, others of them, the text would say, but many believed, or some believed, and so what's happening is, some of the Jewish people are placing their faith in Jesus after they hear Paul preach the gospel. And of course, this angers the the Jewish leadership, the Sanhedrin, uh, because they, they are seeing people that are walking away from what they are teaching and they're running towards the gospel and the freedom that is extended in Christ. And so they see Paul as quite a threat. Paul is a threat to them and to their way of life and to their whole religion. And so historically, what do they do with threats? They eliminate them. In the Old Testament, the prophets, if they saw them as a threat, they eliminate him. Jesus, in the Gospels, they saw him as a threat, they eliminate him. Now the Apostle Paul, they see him as a threat, and they're looking to eliminate the Apostle Paul. The problem is, Paul hasn't broken a Roman law. Paul hasn't done anything to break Roman law. He's only broken some of the Jewish law, and the Jewish authorities don't have the legal right to put him to death. So they need to put him on trial before a Roman official. So Paul is brought before Felix, the governor, the Roman governor of Judea. And then chapter 24 is basically the courtroom drama, right? The the Sanhedrin come up and they bring their hotshot attorney up there and they present the prosecution. Here's what he did. Here's all the stuff that he's guilty of. And then Paul gets to present his defense. No, no, no. That's not what happened. Here's what really happened. And so you've got this courtroom scene playing out at the end of which Felix is supposed to render a verdict. I've heard your side. I've heard your side. Here's what I, here's the verdict, right? Well, here's what happens. Chapter 24, verse 22. says, but Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way or of Christianity, it says that he put them off, saying, when Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. And then he gave orders to the centurion that he, that's Paul, should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. So basically, Felix doesn't make a decision. He's supposed to render a verdict, but instead, he, he does nothing. He, he basically says, yeah, I'll decide your case later. He doesn't render a verdict. Instead, he keeps Paul in custody. He's kind of on like a house arrest. Essentially, he's on like house arrest, where he's in custody, but he can have some visitors and some friends, and they can kind of attend to him. And um, again, it's, it's basically Felix's way of not rendering a verdict, and here's why. Felix, as a Roman official, knows that Paul is innocent. He has no legal right to hold him or execute him or anything. But the problem is, if he lets Paul go, it might lead to a Jewish revolt. It might lead to another Jewish riot. Felix, as the Roman governor of the time, he can't have a Jewish revolt on his hands. So he does what a lot of uh, politicians do. Instead of doing what's right, he does what's popular, right? He does what's popular. This is what's going to pacify the people. I'll just keep Paul in custody. So he he, he essentially does nothing. He just just puts them off. Well, I want you to notice kind of what plays out next and see maybe what we can take from... From this text verse 24 it says after some days felix came with his wife drusilla it's a rather unfortunate name wouldn't you agree it just sounds like a it sounds like an evil queen in a disney movie a little bit doesn't it (laughs) drusilla hopefully nobody in here is named drusilla and i just greatly offended you um it says that she was jewish and he sent for paul and heard him speak about his faith in Christ Jesus. So he sends for Paul, and Paul unpacks the gospel. He begins to talk about what it means to have faith in Christ. Verse 25 says, And as he reasoned about righteousness and about self-control and about the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed, and he said, Go away for the present, and when I get an opportunity, I will summon you. I underlined that word opportunity that's really what I want to focus in on this morning is the word opportunity come back to that in a moment so Paul calls uh, I'm sorry Felix calls for Paul and Paul gets to explain and unpack the gospel in front of Felix And then it says that he reasoned with him. So they they had conversation, kind of a back and forth, Q&A, and they talked about uh, righteousness and about self-control. And ultimately, of course, all of that leads to there's going to be a judgment one day. And you might think, well, why did Paul talk about or reason about those specific things? Well, over in John, the Gospel of John chapter 16, Jesus is talking. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says this in verse 8. He says, when he, that's the Holy Spirit, comes... He will convict the world concerning sin or lack of self-control and righteousness and judgment. So essentially, the Holy Spirit is using the Apostle Paul to convict Felix. The Holy Spirit is using the Apostle Paul to convict Felix. He's doing exactly what Jesus said the Spirit would do. And so Paul talks to him about these specific things. Now, when you're confronted with your sin, you have two options, you can repent, you can confess, you can repent, you can turn from your sin, or you can harden your heart and push people away. Felix chooses option B. Rather than acknowledge his sin, Felix was a man who, if you look historically, he, he essentially lured uh, Drusilla, this, this young, beautiful woman, away from another man. She was his third wife every moment of Felix's life is essentially the opposite of walking in righteousness so paul begins to unpack these things and felix is rightfully nervous scared alarmed he's bothered he's bothered by what paul is saying and rather than confess his sin and repent of his sin he simply says get away from me i don't want to hear it anymore and then he uses this word when i have opportunity i'll summon you when i get opportunity i'll summon you We'll read the rest of this really quick. Verse 25 says, at the same time, he hoped that money would be given to him by Paul. So he's hoping for a bribe. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. Verse 27, when two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus, another very unfortunate name, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, he left Paul in prison desiring to do the Jews a favor. So again, instead of doing what's right, he does what's popular to appease the masses. Again, I want to focus on that word opportunity because here's what kind of dawned on me as I read the text. Felix sends Paul away and says, when I get opportunity, but yet as you read through the story, it appears to me that Felix has a lot of opportunity, doesn't he? I mean, Felix has tons of opportunity here. He has opportunity to hear the gospel from the apostle Paul. But instead of believing, we're never given any indication that he ever does. He has opportunity to repent and confess his sin as Paul talks about sin and righteousness and judgment, but he never repents of his sin. Instead, he hardens his heart and pushes Paul away. He has opportunity for two years to bring Paul in, to talk with Paul. Again, sometimes we read Acts and we think this thing happened in just a moment, but it's a period of two years that Paul is here and Felix brings Paul in time after time after time after time to talk with him and converse with him and Paul can unpack the gospel and explain things to him. He's got a lot of opportunity. At the end of which, again, the law said you should let Paul go, but instead of taking that opportunity to do what's right, he does what's popular. It's just interesting to me that Felix uses the word opportunity and yet he's a man full of opportunity, but he never takes the opportunity. He never takes the opportunity. And it got me to thinking, why not? Why is Felix so painfully unaware of the opportunity that's at his fingertips? I think the answer is right there in front of us in verse 26. You see, it says at the same time he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. You see where Felix's heart, you see where Felix's desires are. You see the thing inside of Felix that is pulling at him. Again, the crazy irony is that Felix is already a man of substantial popularity, power, and wealth. He's already got those things at his fingertips, and yet he wants more. He wants more. He wants more. It's almost like those things are not enough, right? Those things are not enough. Can I just tell you that it is very easy for money to become your master? It's very easy for money to become your master. Jesus said it this way in the Gospels, that man cannot serve two masters, that he will love one and despise the other, but you cannot serve both God and money. And this is such a lesson, I think, to all of us. It's so easy for... The thing that our world says is most important, the thing you should work for and try to attain more of constantly throughout life, for that thing to be the thing that drives you. And this is not a sermon on like giving, but I will say this, like one of the reasons we talk a lot about generosity around here, and one of the reasons that that's one of our values here, it's not, I've said this before, it's not because God needs your money. God's doing just fine, right? Like God, God owns it all. Afraid, betrayed by a guy named Judas who gets 30 pieces of silver to betray Jesus. We're told in the prophecy that he would be stripped, beaten, mocked, and spit on. And he was. The prophecy said that he would be falsely accused and yet not speak up to defend himself. Isaiah says that, like a lamb is led before the slaughter, that he would open not his mouth. The prophecy says that he would be crucified. And this is interesting. In Psalms, it talks of crucifixion. It mentions uh, nails. It mentions spikes driven in hands and feet. And this was hundreds of years before crucifixion was even invented as a means of execution by the Persians and then later perfected by the Romans. So it's really important to understand this. It mentions crucifixion and how he would die hundreds of years before crucifixion was even a, a means of execution. Prophecy is very specific. Prophecy that says in the Old Testament he would be crucified among other sinners, and we know that Jesus was hung on a cross between common thieves and criminals. Prophecy that mentions uh, they would cast lots for his garments. We read in the gospel stories how the Roman soldiers divided his garment, and they played a little dice game there at the foot of the cross, dividing up the garments of Jesus. We read in the prophecy that none of his bones would be broken. It's very interesting because crucifixion is a violent means of death, and yet... Not a bone on his body was broken. If you remember the story at the cross, um, the the executioner comes by the body of Jesus hanging and they sees that he's already dead. So rather than break his legs, which is how they would expedite the death uh, of a criminal, they didn't break a bone. Instead, they ran a spear through his side, fulfilling the prophecy. The prophecy is even uh, what he would say from the cross hundreds of years before uh, Jesus. It said that he would declare, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The prophecy then declared that he would die. You might be thinking that's not much of a prophecy, right? I can prophesy that about every one of you, right? You're all going to die. Happy New Year, right? Like that's one for one, right? Like that's, that's not much of a prophecy, but here's the thing. It doesn't end there, right? The prophecy goes on to say that he would be buried in a rich man's tomb. We know that Joseph of Arimathea, who was a more wealthy follower of Christ, gets the body of Jesus, buries him in his own tomb, which would have been a rich man's tomb. And then the prophecy, of course, says that he would rise from the grave, that he would indeed be resurrected. And we celebrate that, of course, every Easter, that he did not stay in the grave, but three days later, he gets up and he walks out. And that is what our faith hinges on. Our faith hinges on that event. That our Savior is not dead, but he's very much alive. All of these prophecies, that's about 20 of them. There's about 40 more. That they all speak with great detail about this Messiah, this anointed one that was going to come one day. And I want you to see, as we talk about the gospel this way, that Jesus is the fulfillment of, of, of what God is doing through this people in the Old Testament. Jesus comes along and he is literally the fulfillment of all of the promise and all of the prophecy that was spoken about him hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years before he ever stepped on the scene. Jesus is the true Israelite. He's the faithful Israelite who who, who fulfills all the promise, all of the law, all of the prophecy. And so we think about this and we're like, how did they miss it? If there's all of these things that spoke about what he would do and then he does all of those things, how did so many people miss that he was the Messiah? And I think this is the answer. Like, the Messiah, this anointed one, was to come and they had heard he was going to be prophet, priest, and king. Prophet, priest, and king. The prophet is one who speaks the truth of God. The priest is one who connects people to God. And then the king, of course, is one that rules and reigns over all. And considering where Israel, these people, find themselves at this time and place in history, they are under this brutal Roman regime. Much of their history had been in captivity to the Babylonians or the Assyrians or other different groups. And I think what happens sometimes is they had kind of forgotten about the prophet and the priest role, and they were really focused on a king. They were thinking king. When you think of king, you think of political, military king, someone to ride in to free us from our oppressors to rule and reign, and and that's what they were looking for, and Jesus wasn't that kind of king. So they kind of had some tunnel vision, and they didn't see all the prophecy that he fulfilled. Rather, they were looking for the king, and Jesus wasn't the king they were looking for, so they quickly kind of wrote him off. But make no mistake, Jesus fulfills all of the prophecy and all of the promise in Scripture. And what's really interesting to note is that Jesus uh, even said this when he was alive. On numerous occasions, Jesus... Um, in great detail, unpacked the scriptures so that people could see that he was the fulfillment of, of that promise. Really quick, we'll look at a few of those places in Matthew chapter five, verse 17. Matthew five, verse 17. Jesus is speaking here and he says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus says, I have come to fulfill All that stuff you've been reading about and hearing about, I've come to fulfill. John chapter 5. John chapter 5, verses 39 and 40. Jesus is talking here to the religious leaders. These guys would have had all these prophecies memorized, okay? They would have had them all memorized. They're the ones that taught all the other people all the prophecy. So Jesus is talking to this group right here. And in verse 39 of John 5, he says, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. And yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Jesus is saying, listen, you guys know, you know the Bible. Like, you know all the verses. And you think that in memorizing all the verses, you have a lot of life. But what you don't understand is that all the stuff you're reading about and teaching about, hello, it's about me, right? You're not going to understand the scriptures apart from Jesus. The scriptures don't make any sense apart from Jesus. He says, I'm what they're all about. Two different times in Luke 24... In Luke 24, on two different occasions, Jesus has already died on the cross, risen from the grave, and then he shows up to his followers. One time on the road to Emmaus, two of them are walking along, and Jesus shows up and he joins them. And he begins to unpack for them um, the Old Testament to explain to them who he is. Luke 24, beginning in verse 25, and then he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He takes them through like Old Testament survey, right? He takes them through the class and he's like, guys, all the stuff you've been hearing about? Yeah, I'm the fulfillment of all that stuff. A few verses later, over in the same chapter, verse, uh, verse 44, the disciples are in a room, And they're all gathered together, and Jesus shows up in their midst, right? He shows up, and here's what he says in verse 44. Then he said to them, "'These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, "'that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets "'and the Psalms must be fulfilled.' "'Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. "'And he said to them, "'Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer "'and on the third day rise from the dead.' And that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. So Jesus basically writes and says, all the stuff you've heard about, guys, I'm the fulfillment of all that God was doing in the nation of Israel through this particular people. I'm the fulfillment of all of that stuff. I'm the Messiah. He's reminding them of, these, of this truth. What I want you to see again is that the gospel is more than just a set of theological principles. It's not something we just hear one time and believe and then sort of put it to the side. But, but the gospel is this narrative story of promise and fulfillment, whereby Jesus is the Messiah. He is the full revelation of God to us. The Bible says all that we need to know about God, we can see and we find in Christ. If you want to know who God is, you look at Jesus. You look at Jesus. One last text I want to read to you is over in Colossians chapter 1. It puts it, Paul puts it beautifully. Paul puts it beautifully. In Colossians 1, beginning in verse 15, Paul says this, that he, that is Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church, He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus is the picture of God. He is the full revelation of God. And it's really important that we remember The gospel is more than just a set of theological principles, but it's this narrative story of what God has been doing throughout history. A couple things really quick before we close of why it's so important to remember the gospel this way. It reminds us of some really important things. Number one, it reminds us that God is a God who keeps his promises. God is a God who fulfills and keeps his promises. And that's important because God has made a lot of promises to us, As you read the Bible, you'll see a lot of promises God made to us. God has promised to never leave us or forsake us. God has promised to be with us wherever we go. God has promised that he is preparing a place for us one day. God has promised that he will come back again one day and take us to be where he is. God has made a lot of promises to us in scripture. And listen, if God didn't have a track record of keeping his promises, we would have no reason to believe him. It'd be very easy to question, doubt, speculate, and wonder. But God shows this unbelievable track record of keeping and fulfilling his promises. When we remember the gospel, we remember that our God is a promise keeper and we can trust what he says. Remembering the gospel this way helps remind us that God is sovereign over human history. You see God's plan worked out in crazy detail in human history. God is sovereign. He, he uses people. He uses even kings and rulers like pawns in his grand scheme. God's will will not be thwarted. And I don't know about you, but when I watch that he wants to use me, some would listen to that and look at that and say, dunk in the world there's sin and, I mean, there's threats of war and political unrest and all kinds of issues and problems. And I don't know about you, but it's comforting to me. I can lay my head down at night on my pillow and rest in the fact that God is in complete control, that God has proven and God has shown through the gospel that he's in control. We remember the gospel this way because it helps us remember we can trust the scriptures. We can trust the scriptures. Listen, I went through about 20 of many other prophecies that were, that were foretold in crazy detail. And I would remind you that the Bible is not one book. The Bible is a collection of a lot of books. It's a collection of a lot of books written over the course of like 12, 13, 1400 years by 40 some odd different authors in three different languages from three different continents. And there's unbelievable unity in what they're all talking about in the person and work of Jesus. And and that is is just a truth. When you think of it this way, it's like people go, well, it's not, the question really isn't, you know, how how can you believe the Bible? The question becomes, how can you not believe the Bible? Right? We can trust the scriptures. When we understand the gospel and and what God has done throughout history and how God has worked and orchestrated, we can trust the scriptures. And then finally, I would just say this. When we remember the gospel this way, we we can trust God's plan even when we don't see it or understand it. I promise you there will be times and seasons of your life where you don't see or understand what God is up to and what God is doing. Maybe you're in a season like that right now. You're like, God, I don't, I don't know what you're doing here. I don't get it. I don't get what you're doing in my life. I don't get what your plan is for the future. I don't understand it. There will be times and season of your life where you're just confused as to what God is doing. But listen, remembering the gospel as this narrative story, it reminds us that we can trust God's plan because throughout scripture, I mean, this is not the way that we would have drawn it up. God's story of promise and fulfillment is literally a story by story of how God does things his way, not man's way, Um, is this idea of spiritual gifting. And uh, it does bring a lot of divisiveness in a lot of churches. And so I wanted to kind of give you uh, five things that we um, we can hopefully all agree together when it comes to spiritual gifting based on what God's word tells us. All right. And so here we go. Number one, God gives each believer their gift or their gifts according to his will for his purposes, right? God is the one that gives. We talked about it a while ago. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, every believer empowered by the Holy Spirit of God